You know, Miles, in retrospect, the weirdness of Iceman's straight hookups could probably have predicted his gayness all on their own. Yeah, I mean, having a fling with the incarnated concept of Oblivion, who is also her own father, is certainly one way to proclaim one's heterosexuality. Oh, no, no, that's pretty standard for the Marvel Universe. I was talking about Mystique. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 436 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And sometimes through the obscure miniseries. I actually didn't know this one existed until my friend Devin brought it up to me. And now here we are. Here we are. So, we are down to four ongoing X-Books that we're covering in the podcast at this point. But of Yay! course, the miniseries... Yes, much quicker. Uh, the miniseries never stop. Uh, and this one is from 1998, and it's called X-Men Liberators. So, I have a question that I want to come back to at the end of the discussion um, that I want you to keep in mind through this. And that is, should this have been a miniseries or an arc of, the, of one of the main books? That is an excellent question, and um, yes, let's definitely make sure to come back to that after we after we discuss this story. So this is a four-issue miniseries that came out in 1998. It comes fairly closely on the heels of what we've been discussing recently on the show, but just in case we've got new listeners here or folks don't really want to, you know, go back and remember things from a couple weeks ago, which is understandable under current circumstances, let's, you know, let them know what they're jumping into. Previously on X-Men. So after years across the pond as members of Excalibur, the teleporting Nightcrawler, the intangible Shadowcat, and the steel-skinned Colossus have rejoined the X-Men. But with them, they bring... Baggage. Especially Colossus, whose secondary mutation is absolute goddamn continual misery. Yeah, uh, the last time he was on the X-Men, his entire family died one after the other. Uh, first, his... Parents were murdered by the Russian military during a government kidnapping of his kid sister, Ilyana. Then, Colossus's unstable older brother, Mikhail, after apparently coming back from the dead, seemed to once again end his own life while also killing off most of the Morlocks. And then Ilyana herself died of the mostly mutant-targeting legacy virus. Never mind that Colossus himself had also died briefly before the X-Men's time in the Outback. Uh, you know, so did the rest of the X-Men, and they got fixed by magic. That is M-A-G-I-C, not M-A-G-I-K. Right, she went on to die. That was Ilyana. Anyway, thankfully, Colossus, both on Excalibur and on the X-Men, has friends who can help him process all of this grief. Through road trips. And bar fights. That brings us to X-Men Liberators, number one, Old Friends. Written by Joe Harris, penciled by Phil Jimenez, Inked by Keith Aiken, colored by Shannon Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Sarkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. So this is a miniseries, which means, theoretically, somebody who hadn't read the X-Men before might jump in. And Jay, we know the best way for a new reader to jump into an X-Men story. Feet first? Feet first into the danger room. And in fact, yes, this is a danger room opening scene. Those are always great. You see the team train together, which means you get their dynamics, yes, but you also get to see their powers in action. You get to see them call each other by their names, both their code names and their real names. It's a great way to make somebody feel right at home, you know, amid all the spinning blades and stuff. And here it sets up a degree of nostalgia that's going to frame the entire rest of the story. The narration makes that clear as we realize this is from a long time ago. Once upon a time, we were heroes. All new. All different. We were young, strong, fast. We were uncanny. We were the best that we could be. The best there was at what we did. Friends. Heroes. X-Men. And the X-Men here, based on their lineup, are probably the X-Men from a little bit after the Dark Phoenix saga. Uh, and in fact, Phil Jimenez does a really decent uh, John Byrne impression in the art. So this would be during the traditional 70s team, minus Gene and minus Cyclops. Plus Shadowcat, though, right? Because she joined the team the issue after Gene's funeral. Absolutely, yeah. 
And uh, central to this era of the team were Colossus, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler, who in fact are going to be the protagonists of this story. That makes sense because, you know, in this point in X-Men history, Nightcrawler and Colossus, and also Kitty, although she's not as central to this story, uh, had just returned to the X-Men after years and years and years. So this, this issue, this series really, is all about homecomings of various sorts. Now, that was a flashback. What's actually happening um, is Colossus flying to Russia to visit his parents' graves just a few weeks after rejoining the X-Men, and alongside him are Wolverine and Nightcrawler, uh, two of his best buddies. This is basically the structure that the story is going to take. It's going to be interspersing relevant flashbacks with the current story, and it works very, very well. It really does, yeah. It's all about coming to terms with the past, and that works on so many levels, especially for Colossus. He said some good times, he said some bad times. Hope for the best? Expect the worst. You could be Tolstoy or Patty Hearst. Yes, 12 Chairs reference. Possibly my favorite Mel Brooks movie. Anyway, Wolverine seems to have forgiven Colossus uh, since the last time we saw them together. Remember, Wolverine was real pissed at Colossus over Colossus having joined up with Magneto right when Magneto ripped Wolverine's skeleton out uh, back in the day. They're all buds at this point. Wolverine and Colossus healed through the bonding power of a fastball special in that story. They're fine now. And so at this point, the friendship between these three characters, it's not so much that it's the focus of the story as that it's just a given. It's an, of course, it's an obviously. There's also a really charming requisite Wolverine sets off the metal detector gag, which is doubly funny because he does it this time because of his wristwatch, because he doesn't have any adamantium in his skeleton. Exactly, yeah. So we mentioned that Colossus is heading to Russia to mourn his parents, and we talked about this briefly before, But they died back in 1993, uh, publication time, not necessarily in-universe time, in Adjectiveless X-Men 18 and 19. They were killed by the government when the government was kidnapping the de-aged Ilyana from said parents to use her as a weapon against a demonic supervillain called the Soul Skinner. It was a whole thing. Ilyana then died of the legacy virus later the same year in Uncanny X-Men number 303. A year before that um, was Mikhail's apparent death when he flooded the Morlock tunnels in Uncanny X-Men number 293 in 1992. You know, we, we said apparent death. I don't think anyone ever actually told Colossus that Mikhail was actually alive in another dimension, did they? I think you're right, yeah, because he, like, just came back to the X-Men. And I remember in one of those issues, Marrow offhandedly mentions that Mikhail, you know— that she knows Mikhail, that Mikhail is still around, and Colossus is like, wait, what? And then they just get distracted by whatever adventure they're on. So, uh, yeah, I think he might still think Mikhail is dead, but given some of the shit Mikhail's done, and especially later will do, I'm looking at you, current era of X-Force, maybe that's for the best. Tragedy aside, though, the plane's charming. Jay, you mentioned the metal detector thing, and, like, Nightcrawler also gets caught coming out of the airplane bathroom without his image inducer activated, and this awestruck little girl is just staring at him and telling her disbelieving mom about the blue guy that she saw, and Logan's, like, climbing over people on the seats to take a bunch of beer from the flight attendant's cart. Man, Logan is just exceptionally terrible on this flight. He is exceptionally terrible. I mean, not as bad as some of the shit we've been reading about over the last few years, but but not great. I would say do better, Logan, but you won't. Speaking of Logan not doing better, after they get off the plane, they're killing some time uh, on their way to where they're going and end up in a bar. And of course, they get in a bar fight after somebody tries to pickpocket them while Colossus is arm wrestling a dude that Logan pressured him into arm wrestling. It's ridiculous and actually very funny. The X-Men tend to be at their best in bar fights. I'm thinking specifically of, of when the time uh, Cyclops went out and picked a bar fight in Wolverine's memory after he died. Oh yeah, that was great. And of course, there's the classic Uncanny number 183, which is where after Colossus broke up with Kitty, Wolverine took Colossus out to a bar to yell at him, and then the Juggernaut attacked and beat the hell out of Colossus. They, they, it's what they do. They, they fight to protect a world that hates and fears them, and also randos in bars. You know, I I go to bars, like, semi-regularly, and I guess they're more like pubs most of the time in Portland, since everywhere is required to have food by law, but I've I've never been in a fight, let alone a bar fight. And are you a mutant superhero? Oh, I I guess I'm not. Maybe that's why I haven't. You know, that seems seems like a reasonable trade-off, honestly. There you go. Anyway, bar fights aside, in Siberia nearby, there's a military installation named Province 13 that's going to factor very heavily into this story. 
And the narration here, and for much of the series, is from the head of this project, a guy named General Sergei, who's been running this operation for a long time and is really bitter about how neglected and irrelevant it's become since the fall of the USSR. It's it's very Stranger Things, like this place has a bunch of little kids in a colorful daycare in the middle of these gray steel walls, and the kids are being monitored for mutant powers, essentially ESP for the most part. Um, I don't know, is that... Is that a thing? Like, I think Stranger Stranger Things, but Stranger Things also largely exists as something that references other things. Yeah, exactly. I think it's more that these two both are derived from the same source materials. Did did Russia in the 1980s and 90s, like, really want to find kids with ESP? I don't know about the 80s and 90s. I know that um, it was a big, big thing in the 60s and 70s. Fascinating. Huh. Well, uh, anyway, they're they're doing it here, too. What's different here, though, is something we've talked about in some recent stories. Specifically, there was nuclear testing in the USSR a bit before all that, and lots of mutant kids were born in this specific area. It's implied that the three mutant Rasputin kids, Colossus, Magic, and Mikhail, were just some of them. And remember, this is something we've seen in the United States, too, um, almost Reno, Nevada, but also... With regards to, for instance, Charles Xavier, who is heavily implied to have been a mutant because his father worked on the Manhattan Project. Yeah, this was a big thing back in especially the Silver Age, but also the Bronze Age, and it's been come back to occasionally. Like, apparently, being exposed to radiation means you're more likely to have mutant kids. And if there's a lot of radiation around a specific geographic area, you're going to have more mutants. We're going to be getting back to Almost Reno and our X-Force coverage really soon, so this ties in. Oh, good. I really like Almost Reno. Me too. But it's not just cute kids being monitored for powers here, because there's also a mysterious monster in solitary confinement, which proceeds to murder the hell out of an arrogant guard that walks into its cell to force it to eat the meal it ignored, at which point it escapes. So the plot kicks in just as our heroes arrive in Russia. The narration really makes it clear just how grim this all is, what Province 13 is up to. Most of the children taken to Province 13 proved to be disappointments. Average, less than useful. Occasionally, one is validated. His or her young mutant potential quantified, exercised, and utilized for the country's good. And then, there are other outcomes. What I'm learning here is that any government organization that deals with mutants, it's it's going to end up bad. You got this, you got your Department H, you have your related to that Weapon X, you have Alpha Flight and X-Factor, which aren't quite as gruesome, but still don't tend to work out very well. And that brings us to X-Men Liberators number two, Home is Where the Heart Is. This is written by Joe Harris, penciled by Phil Jimenez, inked by Keith Aiken, Rob Lee, and Andrew Papoy, colored by Shanton Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Sarkings and Comicraft and Wes Abbott. Wes Abbott! Oh, there's a new Comicraft member. Good job, Wes Abbott. You know, back like 24, 5 years ago. Hope you survived the experience. So this issue's opening flashback is set during Giant Size X-Men number 1, and just as he did a very solid burn, Jimenez is doing a pretty terrific Cockrum in these pages. Um, and likewise, I love how consistent the characters' voices here are with Len Wein's versions. And also the very, again, very Cockrum and very era-specific conceit of the team lining up and posing during briefings. Hey, Cockrum works very hard on those character designs and costumes, and damn it, he wants to make sure the readers appreciate them. Oh, it's delightful, but it's also very specifically an early X-Men Cockrum thing. And I just, I, I love when artists in flashbacks hone in on not only their predecessor's sort of general visual style, but, like, their specific foibles. 100%, yeah. Like, aping the way somebody draws a face is one thing, but aping the way, like, people are framed in the panel is quite another. And here Wolverine is needling Colossus, climbing on his shoulders, popping claws, and threatening him, as he says, I just wanted to get a rise out of him, Chuck. See if he's got the stones to watch my back. It's rough out there, kid. There's a time and a place to be tough. You gotta be ready for yours. Wolverine was such a little shit back in the day. Oh yeah, he was horrible. I think it's easy to forget that. I remember we were not exactly surprised in our coverage uh, when we covered that back in the day, but perhaps surprised at how intense it was. Like, early in the days of the all-new, all-different X-Men, Wolverine is just absolutely terrible. Yeah, he's he's just he's just a complete dick. Like, he's he's totally unsympathetic. It's kind of delightful. 
yeah, at that point, he's not a murder uncle. He's like your, I don't know, bar fight cousin. And not the fun kind of bar fight. Like the kind behind a bar where, where everybody's just crying and throwing up a lot. I assume that's a thing. I've never been in a bar fight. You say that so often that I feel like you're you know, kind of over-protesting. <laughs> my, my guilty secret is that I get in regular bar fights. That's like my third job after uh, working in IT and working on this podcast. I'm a professional bar fighter. I've been in arguments, but never, never an actual bar fight. Oh, I've mostly been in bar drunken. I love you, man. No, no, but I love you, man. I get really earnest. Yeah, that's why we don't drink together. I would get earnest and you would argue at me. <laughs> and I would win. Yeah, yeah, you would. So the time and place to be tough for Colossus in the present turns out to be in a churchyard visiting his parents' graves. Colossus's dialogue is just so simple and stark here. Mother, father, I have come home. I had forgotten how cold it was. That's kind of the feel of this series. Like, there's the fun flashbacks where everything is all colorful. There's the camaraderie of our heroes on the plane. But the series is just, it's grim. It's broken people in a broken place. Not just Colossus, but General Sergei, some other characters we're going to meet, even the other heroes at various points. It's, it's definitely got a mood to it that I think is done very well. Here's a question. Does having recently reread Immortal X-Men leave you fundamentally more sympathetic toward Colossus? Oh, God, yes. And I was already very sympathetic toward Colossus. We won't go into spoilers here because we already did our spoiler interview in the Winter Special and we announced that as such. But uh, Colossus has had some fascinating stuff going on in modern continuity lately. So it's interesting to me here that Colossus's parents are buried in a churchyard because Colossus very specifically grew up as an atheist in the USSR, which was, you know, a government that was not a big fan of religion. Like, I think a lot of people assume that he's this very pious, God-fearing character because he's this ethical, pure kind of guy. But, uh, I mean, he specifically talks about being an atheist back in the 70s more than once. Fuck yeah, ethical atheists. Right? I mean, I know that, like, the Russian Orthodox Church is certainly big in Russia. It's, it's right there in the name. Uh, and I know that it had a resurgence after the fall of communism, but I, I don't actually know how that would have worked and whether that would have been weird for Colossus. I mean, I am entirely guessing here and extrapolating from stuff I know about the history of, of internment, internment in, in, in the U.S. And that is that... There are areas that are better and worse suited for burying people, and when you've got one, you pretty much continue to use it. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Practicality. And and he, he doesn't just stick to the churchyard. He enters the attached church, and he finds a woman praying there. Uh, and he introduces himself, and when she hears his name, she spits on the ground. Uh, she knows who he is. She knows who his family is, and she wants nothing to do with him. He shouldn't have come back. Which is kind of surprising because colossus is a real nice guy yeah but if you consider anti-mutant sentiment having been what it was when his powers manifested and if you consider what stories the government would have spread after killing the entire rasputin family now it turns out that her reasons for this are a lot more complicated but we're going to get to those a little bit later Meanwhile, in the woods nearby, Kurt and Logan are on a pleasant stroll, interrupted by a copse of dead trees with two dead deer nearby. Um, and one of the deer has been shot and left to die, but the other supposedly has sort of had the life sucked out of it. Now, this is inconsistent with the art. In the art, it has clearly been disemboweled and partially dismembered, which doesn't make a ton of sense given what we're going to learn about how it actually died. Oh, I can no prize this. So you know how, like, when you're a kid and you have a juice box in your lunch, one of the fun things to do is to keep sucking on the straw really hard even after the juice is already gone, and then the box kind of, like, squishes in and implodes? Uh, maybe this thing had the life force sucked out of it so hard that it just, you know, imploded. Or a scavenger came across it after it had died. See, multiple options. I got your back, Jimenez. Your art totally makes sense. So the shot deer is the work of a pair of soldiers from Province 13. These are Gregor and, Val and Valeria, and they are wandering around being doofuses. Logan and Kurt track and jump them because Logan has issues with anyone who hunts irresponsibly. But they are all taken by surprise by the mutant escapee from Province 13. 
Yeah, this is a gigantic, I say misshapen monster. That's a phrase that's overused a lot in comics, so let's get a little more specific. It's like if you stuck a bunch of people together and then melted them. Kind of like that, yeah. This creature is this large humanoid, but its skin is very melty. Like, you know, going over its eyes, it feels like it's constantly just sort of shifting a little, a little bit liquid. One thing that Jimenez does very well, though, is make this creature look, look like it is in constant agony. It does not look like it's fun to be this thing. And Wolverine, the, the creature attacks them, and Wolverine attacks it. And promptly collapses just as a helicopter arrives. And Wolverine is is suffering, and he's clearly basically dying. Um, and soldiers drag him off, and Nightcrawler, who's hiding in a nearby tree, ultimately lets them, because there's nothing he can do to help Wolverine, you know, in his, his current state. He, there's, there's really not a better option. Yeah, and I love the art here. Kurt just seems so lost. Like, he's drawn with this facial expression and posture that just conveys such anxiety and helplessness. Now, back at the church, a military helicopter lands, and soldiers grab the old lady whom Colossus had been talking to, until Colossus, in fact, busts down a wall to confront them. And Colossus, if you like watching people bust through walls, if you missed that from old X-Factor, this miniseries is for you, because, man, Colossus busts through so many walls in this. Yeah, fuck doors. Who needs them? Although it occurs to me that X-Factor is actually the only major non-teenage X-team that Colossus hasn't ever been on. Now, the soldiers here think that Colossus is, in fact, the mutant that they're hunting, um, which means that his arrival and rescue also confirms their suspicions that the mutant would come for the old lady in the church, because she's its mother. I have to take issue here with uh, General Sergei. Like, I know he's bitter and tired and hates his job at this point. Do you think he'd at least tell the soldiers, you're looking for a mutant? Oh yeah, and that mutant's like a big brown melty guy. That really helps with disambiguation, you know? You'd think, especially in an area that we know has a higher mutant population. Right, right. It's like, you know, going into Portland and being like, hey, I'm looking for a hipster. Meanwhile, in Province 13, a nurse is testing a couple of extremely inconsistently drawn children with a set of Zener cards. Zener cards, you may recall if you have seen the original Ghostbusters movie, they are a deck of cards that is, is, was used, is used in real life to test for, for psychic abilities. Unsuccessfully. The idea is that, you know, the tester holds up a card facing them that the test E cannot see, and the person taking the test has to say, what's on it? You know, is it a circle? Is it three squiggly lines? Whatever. Now, the kids fail, but General Sergei, who's passing by, thinks that he feels one of them in his mind. This is a girl called Nimnanya. And Sergei shortly gets a call from a higher-up government guy in the Kremlin, who apparently is going to be coming by in a couple days to evaluate the usefulness of Province 13. And this, along with the, the missing prisoner, leads General Sergei to give a reluctant and mysterious order, after which, in the Savage Land, a military helicopter retrieves fucking Omega Red. I knew Omega Red was going to show up at some point. It's a story set in Russia. Like, Omega Red has to show up. It's contractually obligated. It's like in that one season of Buffy when Angel was dead, when he would still show up in a dream sequence or flashback in every single episode because of his contract. You know who should show up in more of these stories? Who's that? Ursa Major. Oh, you mean the bear that has a mutant power to turn into a naked man? Yes. I agree. I actually do miss the Soviet super soldiers. They're they're really fun. There's bear guy and robot guy and... Some other people, probably. Ursa Major is the important one, because if you run into him, it's awkward no matter what. As far as Russian mutants go, I always liked Darkstar. I mean, she was fine, but mainly I liked that she had the same name as that bizarre space stoner movie that John Carpenter made. Oh, God, I'd forgotten that movie existed. Wow. Yeah, the one where, like, astronauts with big beards are surfing through space, and there's a bomb that is suicidal, and they try to talk it down. And fail. Great movie. Completely unrelated to the Marvel character. Anyway, as for why Omega Red's in the Savage Land, because, you know, that's not exactly next door to Russia. It's in fucking Antarctica. 
in the recent Quicksilver series that was going on at this time, Omega Red had been working with the Acolytes, and after failing a mission for them uh, to go up against the High Evolutionary, they decided to abandon him in the Savage Land. I would say dick move, but also it's Omega Red. That's the thing with Omega Red, yeah. Like, there are some villains like Magneto, or even these days Apocalypse, or even arguably these days Mr. Sinister, uh, who's like, you know, you've been through some shit, I get it, I kind of see where you're coming from. And then there's Omega Red, where you're like, oh no, that guy's just just evil. Omega Red is like a less stylish Sabretooth. Uh, or, I don't know, more stylish. Like, look at his look. He's got that bright red and silver and the great big carefully maintained top knot. Yeah, but Sabretooth knows how to rock a hat. Uh, true, true. Uh, Omega Red's top knot would get in the way. Yeah. Unless it was, like, a sun visor. He could wear that. Or, like, a very tall top hat. Oh, yeah, just just cram the top knot up in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Excellent. That brings us to X-Men Liberators number three, a game of hide and seek, possibly hiding a top knot in a hat. Anyway, it's written by Joe Harris, uh, penciled by Phil Jimenez, inked by Keith Aiken and John Stokes. No relation. Colored by Shannon Blanchard and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And of course, we get another flashback. This time is indeed a game of hide and seek. Coincidentally, with Colossus, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler. They're playing hide-and-seek on the mansion lawn, complete with Colossus amusedly ripping a tree out of the ground to uh, tag Wolverine, who's hiding in it. Do you remember that time that John Byrne quit drawing X-Men because he was so frustrated with his communication with Claremont? Like, he had drawn Colossus pulling a tree out of the ground and looking all in agony and exerting maximum strength, and Claremont's narration was like, this was easy for Piotr. Yeah, I think that he would be mad because he's good at finding things to be mad about. John Byrne is famously ornery. That's very true. Anyway, as far as when this part is set, it's actually probably right after the X-Men got back from the original Secret Wars, from Battleworld, but right before Storm lost her powers. Because, like, we have Xavier walking, wearing that weird yellow jumpsuit with the black X on it that he wore briefly. We have Punk Storm, but she's still flying, and Rogue is there wearing that orange pullover that she wore for a while. Oh, damn, I remember that. It was kind of a fun look, like, not a color associated with Rogue, but she totally rocked it. Everything was just so cheerful and fun back then compared to what we're seeing here. Like, not that terrible stuff didn't happen in the Bronze Age, it totally did, but nothing quite so grim. Now, the present, on the other hand, is significantly grimmer. We have Wolverine being vivisected by Province 13th surgeons to examine the interaction of his healing factor with the mutant whose name is Nicholas Death Aura. That's right. The missing mutant has a death aura. Omega Red's in the comic. He has a mutant death factor, which is effectively a death aura, but with a sillier name. So, you know, parallels. Oh, no, no. Omega Red has death spores. Also known as a mutant death factor. I remember that from a trading card I had of him. Yeah, but death spores sounds so much stupider. Does it? I feel like this is a reasonable uh, contest. Listeners, if you have an opinion about whether mutant death factor or death spores sound stupider, uh, let us know in the comments to this episode if you want. One of the things this miniseries also does, though, is really focus on just how the how General Sergei's Province 13 is falling apart in the same way that a lot of things fell apart in Russia after the fall of the USSR. The narration, I, I love how much it gets across not just what's literally happening here, but the state of Sergei's mind because of that. Machines beep. Wires jerry-rigged to fight their age and obsolescence. Research funds spent decades ago are made, begged to bear fruit. An entire operation teeters on its last legs, keeping one deadly mutant's escape a secret, as well as another's dying a long time in coming. The latter referring to Wolverine. So we mentioned that Omega Red has no redeeming characteristics. I mean, he was a serial killer that was recruited to be a bad guy. Like, what the hell? General Sergei, I mean, he's... A pretty shitty person, no question. He's done some very bad things. He continues to do very bad things in this series. But you definitely get where he's coming from. You definitely get how he got there. I have worked for over 20 years in this capacity. I, I could have taken other assignments, done lesser work for easier gains. I have done more than could ever have been asked of me, and I do not... But the politician guy he's talking to, who has indeed arrived, nonetheless, shuts this place down. It's got a couple days, and then that's it. 
And part of Sergei's job is just to bury everything that happened here, to cover it all up, including his own failure in losing Nicholas. Now, that's what Omega Red is here to do. Omega Red is, is hunting his quarry through the country, countryside, and in doing so, he finds he finds a shack, and he's about to go kill everyone in it, and discovers that somebody has beaten him to the punch. Um, the, the peasants who live there are already drained and withered, even beyond how he would have left them. Jeez, so much draining out of life essence here. Is everyone just running around with some sort of a mutant curly straw? Yes. Colossus, for his part, is is hiding in a cave with the old lady he had rescued, whose name, it turns out, is, is Ariana. This is Nicholas's mother. Uh, I'd like to point out how he got to the cabin where they're recuperating. Like, he literally burrowed a goddamn tunnel from the ground of the church out to here, like he's fucking a, a big metal mole, or, or like Bugs Bunny or something. He also lights a fire for them by rubbing his knuckles together. Well, by clicking them together and producing a spark. Oh, fine. I just thought he might have a flint hand on one side or something. The right hand of Doomy Flint. But we get a flashback to Ariana's past, specifically to why she hates Colossus so much. Apparently, the day after Colossus, Piotr, was born, Ariana had a baby too. But as soon as this baby was born, all the plants in the room started dying. And he was visibly extremely, extremely deformed. Exactly, yeah. So she saw Mikhail, and then Piotr, and then Eliana, all born, these healthy children, mutants, yes, but doing just fine, and with powers that seemed, like, pretty okay. And then there was her kid. And what made it even worse is the next day, the military took the baby away. Just telling her. The Soviet Union thanks you for your contribution, madam. So yeah, uh, I understand why she's pretty messed up. She's about to get more messed up, though, because Omega Red knows that part of how you catch something is to have bait for it. So he tries to capture Ariana. And, of course, Colossus is there to, you know, fight him. And then Nicholas shows up as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a great big brawl. But I do like how Omega Red sees Colossus and is like, well, I don't know why the X-Men are here, but I don't care. I guess I'll thump you, too. Like, he notes that it's weird and just pursues it no further. He's just like, it's somebody else to murder, okay. Yep. Yep, one more. Oh, God, poor Ariana, though. Like, you get the impression she's probably not seen her child since her child was one day old. She still knows this is Nicholas. Like, I don't know if it's some sixth mother sense or what. I mean, he looks pretty similar to how he did at birth. Oh, that's right, that's right. She did have a description of this mutant child as opposed to just, like, you know, general mutant that the soldiers were searching for because she held that baby uh so yeah she's um in some severe emotional turmoil as you might imagine and while they're all fighting nightcrawler for his part is sneaking into province 13 i love the way it's drawn it's all precise perfect complex steel and machinery like it's clear that at one point this was a state-of-the-art facility but now it's all stained and rusted. Like, there are still those clean lines, there's still that silver, and then there's just grime all around the edges of it. And he ends up in the nursery, where we continue a conceit that I love that's sort of been there throughout the comics, which is that kids fucking love Nightcrawler. Which, yes, they would. They would just be like, who is this guy? He's great. He's blue, and he's got weird hands, and we're best friends now. Why is he so blue? Maybe he's sad. Do you know what he's saying? I think he wants a treat. It's pretty adorable. Nanya, however, as we alluded to, does have power. Specifically, she's telepathic, so she can talk to him. And Nightcrawler sort of, like, takes stock of this whole thing and realizes, shit, I mean, he didn't have the easiest upbringing, but he ended up on the X-Men, and these kids have ended up here. I mean, to be fair, he didn't end up with the X-Men until he was significantly older than they are. Oh, that's true. He uh, did have some angry mobs and very convoluted, contradictory backstory before then. And he ultimately finds Wolverine just as Wolverine's corpse is being dragged to an unmarked grave. Fortunately, this has one of those, or is it, 
endings because a clawed hand emerges from said grave, pointing directly to X-Men Liberators number four, Gifted Youngsters. This is written by Joe Harris, penciled by Philip Jimenez, inked by John Stokes, colored by Shannon Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And in the potter's field of the churchyard, Colossus finds Nightcrawler digging up Wolverine's grave, which is, of course, completely empty. It's so effective and sad. Nightcrawler's, like, slowly freezing to death and whispering for Logan not to worry as he digs through horrifying unmarked grave after horrifying unmarked grave with his hands! And, like, he's got Wolverine's costume piled next to him as he moves from one grave to the next to the next. It's rough. Luckily, Wolverine shows up modeling his signature nude-in-the-snow look. Shrinkage, bub. And back at Province 13, Omega Red is not as unperturbed as he seemed by the X-Men. He wants to know why the hell they're involved in this situation. I love this scene. I love seeing Omega Red confronting the general as the soldiers are watching in this broken down base because they're just like dudes. They're soldiers. Like it's clear that their gear is kind of falling apart and they're maybe not so well fed. And then there's this immense hulking supervillain with giant hair and a perfect top knot and these immense shoulder pads and this red and silver outfit and like biceps as big around as their torsos like this is not a funny series by any means but i i did laugh aloud softly at that contrast shortly thereafter general sergey sets his office on on fire and heads off because remember he's got to cover all this shit up Meanwhile, Province 13 troops are mobilizing, and the kids are allegedly being moved, but Nanya knows better, and she sneaks the other kids away from the soldiers, but they head back for a teddy bear. And they're able to meet back up with Nightcrawler in the process of doing so, but unfortunately, the reunion is interrupted by a fighting Wolverine and Omega Red, the latter of whom manages to grab the kids. This is such a common trope, and yet it totally works here. It's Omega Red holding up a couple of, like, cute little girls. One of them, he's holding her up by the neck with his arm tentacle and talking about how he'll murder them in a second. Like, you want to make your bad guy seem real evil? Have him hold up cute little children and threaten to murder them for basically no reason. Uncool, bro. Uncool. Nightcrawler manages to rescue the one of them without a name, but before he can get to Nanya... Both Nicholas and General Sergei show up. And suddenly, amid all of this, it almost becomes a horror story as Colossus stalks the soldiers, as Colossus enters this battle as well. Metal shears like skin pulled back from bone. It is a horrible sound. The kind that crawls up the spine like ice before settling in the base of the skull. It would be enough reason to scream. They should be so lucky. You know, actually, that is an organism, and if you don't scream, it'll kill you. (laughs) The Tingler! I love this, though. It almost reminds me in a weird way of that early scene from Tim Burton's 89 Batman movie, where, like, there are all the criminals freaking out as they just disappear one by one. This is a much more violent scene. I mean, he's, like, ripping his way through the metal walls, like you said, very X-Factor. But it's got that kind of grim, avenging angel feel to it as well. I mean, it's also very Wolverine and the Hellfire Club sewers. It is, yeah. And this works. Like, Colossus is portrayed in a very subtle fashion here. He doesn't have a ton of dialogue. He doesn't emote a lot. But it's just him coming back, him seeing what's happening to the children in the area where he grew up, him knowing that it's not okay, and knowing that he is going to stop it. There's been so much death in his background, in his family, and he's not going to let it happen again. But it's almost like he's cried all of his tears already. It doesn't mean he's not a compassionate person. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. Those are very much the case. But he's getting but shit it does, done. He's getting shit done. Yeah. Now, Nicholas manages to effectively defeat Omega Red, who, who flees. And then... Nicholas comes to comes face to face with his mother for the first time since his birth, and she gently reaches out to touch him and then stabs him to death with some broken glass. Yeah. Yeah, basically it's a it's it's a mercy killing of her child. It's um very rough and upsetting. It's not graphic. It's all off panel. Like you just see her hand clutching the gl- the glass, and then, you know, off panel, Nicholas is killed. You see mostly Wolverine and Nightcrawler's reaction, but God damn this comic. 
And it really just keeps going because General Sergei has taken Nanya kind of hostage and Colossus convinces him to hand her over after which the general promptly shoots himself. Yeah, and it's Colossus in that kind of avenging angel mode. It's the feel-good movie of the summer! But it's so effective. Like, Colossus, again, he's not saying, hey, buddy, let's talk you down. He's just He just tells Sergei, I think it would be better if you handed her over. And Sergei's just broken at this point and just says, yes, yes, I think it would. And again, off-panel, that's where you hear the bang, and you just see his hand dripping with blood in the corner of a panel after that. It's not gratuitous at all. It, this is not like torture porn by any means. It's just that this guy has had this burden. He's had this bitterness building up for decades at this point, and the bitterness won. Um, I, I guess was, two characters do get slightly happier endings. Um, Ariana, Nicholas's mother, ends up adopting Nanya, so you know, that's nice. Yeah, and, and the base is closed down, and all the children are, uh, I assume, freed. I mean, Nanya got adopted. The kids, uh, I don't know, maybe they started a band of uh, joyful criminal misfits out in the woods or something. And we close once again with a flashback. And some familiar narration. Once upon a time, we were heroes. All new. All different. Friends. Heroes. X-Men. That's right, we're back in the same flashback from the first issue in the Danger Room with Colossus struggling to hold up this gigantic weight that's pressing down on him to save his friends. And Wolverine and Nightcrawler being really nice to him about it. Yeah, they just tell him, hey, it's okay, buddy, you, you can set it down. And then in the present, we see a laid out uh, Cockrum style, the team welcoming him home. It's a nice little subtle metaphor here. It doesn't just rub it in your face, but the idea that some of us just have these burdens. We have these darknesses in our pasts. We have this baggage, this trauma, and we can't control that. And, you know, to say that we can just decide that it's fine and just let it go and be okay, that would be facile. That would be silly. But the idea that you do have something of a choice and with the right support system, with the right kind of friends, you can maybe lay it down and maybe move on maybe you can be colossus instead of sergey for such a grim goddamn miniseries it's actually kind of optimistic so i've got actually i've got a second question to, to go with my first question that i asked at the beginning of the episode about whether this should have been a miniseries or an arc of, of an ongoing um and that is whether this reminds you at all of havoc and wolverine meltdown that's a really good question. Uh, I, I think it does. I mean, part of it is obviously the the plot is a little bit based around the fall of the USSR. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also focusing on the friendship between two or three specific X-Men characters outside the context that they're normally in. And also involves Wolverine seeming to die and then clawing his way out of a grave. Yes, yeah, that, that that's consistent. But it's it's lyrical in some similar ways, too. Yeah, I mean, I think Meltdown is something truly, truly special. Um, part of that, I'm sure, is nostalgia. I grew up reading that one, and I just discovered this one. We both did. No, I mean, I, I Meltdown Meltdown is heads and tails better. Like, comparing things to Meltdown is, like, is, is just kind of pointless and mean. It's cruel, yeah. But I think you're right, and you're right about it being lyrical as well. Like, we did a little bit of the narration, but it's actually very beautifully written. Like, not in an overwritten way. It's not that purple prose we really enjoy sometimes. But it's got this, like, stark simplicity to it that uh, just does get across, like, the different kinds of trauma that these characters have felt. Yeah, Jimenez does a good job with it, but I, it's hard not to wonder what would have looked like with, a less, with someone who's less of a traditional superhero artist. Oh, somebody who could just really be stylistic about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. As to your first question, should this have been a miniseries or an arc of the comic— You know, it could have been an arc of the comic. I think that would have worked. Like, it's in continuity. It's focusing on some important stuff, which is the Excalibur characters coming back to X-Men, even though, like we said, Kitty's not really in it. But at the same time, I don't know if you'd really want to dedicate a full four issues of, say, X-Men or Uncanny X-Men to this story. Yeah, fair. What do you think? I think it could have been an arc of Wolverine. You know, actually, that could work. 
And certainly Wolverine has focused on other characters before, as long as Logan's there as well. Like Wolverine has a pretty large cast over the years. So having an arc of Wolverine that you could probably cut down to three issues, honestly, and having it be more about Colossus, like, yeah, that'd be all right. Omega Red's even a Wolverine villain, mostly. And it kind of, it fits the pace of a Wolverine story. I think you're totally right. Yeah. So yeah, not an answer I was thinking we would uh, come up with when we got to this question at the end of the episode, but nor I. Yeah, fuck it. All right, here we go. X-Men Liberators, a.k.a. an arc of Wolverine. So we are not the only ones who, who come here with questions. Um, you have sent us some as well. And Daniel emailed us to ask, If I read and listened correctly, Dark Beast is 20-plus years older than Beast. How come this is almost never mentioned, and Dark Beast is written as almost interchangeable with Beast? Are we supposed to believe that a hair dye can hide 20 years of aging? You know, that's a really good question, because you're right. When Dark Beast came to Earth-616 from the Age of Apocalypse, he came 20 years into the past of Earth-616. Remember, also, the Age of Apocalypse, it's often called an alternate future. It's not. It's an alternate present. But Dark Beast, after not too much time had passed, uh, walled real Beast uh, into a, well, wall, and then genetically altered himself to look like Beast. That was an X-Men Unlimited number 10. He didn't just, like, paint himself blue or something. He was genetically altered. So I feel like if you're going to genetically alter yourself to be blue instead of gray and to have different features slightly, like, fixing your age wouldn't wouldn't be that hard. Yeah, um, given given his his general mad science proclivities, I would I would assume that that's the direction that he errs rather than than hair dye, and and also I'll point out that they they live in a reality with image inducers. That too, yeah. What's weird with Dark Beast, though, uh, one of the things that is weird with Dark Beast is that uh, later on after this, he just shows up gray again, wearing those characteristic metal pants. And then like sometimes he's blue instead, and sometimes he's dark blue, and maybe it's supposed to be gray, and maybe it's supposed to be blue. Like, I feel like as far as his appearance, his age is kind of the least of his concerns. He's so inconsistent. Look, Miles, we can experiment with hair colors and cuts. Why can't a supervillain from an alternate present? Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I think also to further no-prize it, um, he doesn't really have a default form anymore. Uh, after experimenting on so much, he probably just has some go-to like appearance outfits he puts on. And when you get down to it, Henry McCoy, genetically, part of his power is that he is very prone to transforming from one form to another to another. So like, I'd imagine after some practice, Dark Beast shifting between blue and gray and young and old and all that stuff. Like, he just sort of flips the switch and uh, winces for a moment, and then he's done. It's probably very easy. Wish I could do that. Duck Orsino asks on Tumblr, If there was an X-Men newspaper comic strip in the style of the old Spider-Man comic strip, who would you place on the team, keeping in mind that you only get three panels of story per day? So as it happens, Duck, um, I am married to the editorial director for comics of King Features Syndicate, which is the the publisher that used to publish the Spider-Man comic strip. And um, I shamelessly leaned on this connection and, and asked, asked T, who knows that world a lot better than I do. And she didn't give me a specific lineup, but she did tell me what she would prioritize in picking a team for a strip. So it would need to be racially and gender diverse, and they would need visually distinct powers and looks, especially the colors and especially the character silhouettes. Now, something that's not a consideration currently in comic books, but is in newspaper strips, is that a lot of newspapers still use really old printing presses. So the colors need to be distinctive and very simple. Um, for example, I'm, I'm going to guess broadly, I would assume Dazzler's powers would need to be much more line art than color-based, um, as opposed to the way they're usually represented in the comics. So character with and and she also added that characters with cool spot blacks are are a bonus, and that some presses don't print in color at all. So you need to have characters who look very different in black and white or in color. You you can't have the the syndrome you see in some superhero comics where female characters are distinguishable only by their hair color. Oh yeah, Husk and Emma. So with all of that in mind, um, she she you know posited as a sample team. Yeah, Nightcrawler, Storm, and Colossus, who fit all of those those character qualifications, um, just just based on more appearance and and demographics, not really based on story hooks. Now, what I would do is use a rotating cast, focusing on a few characters every story. Um, use that to introduce and cycle characters in and out, 
Um, that would keep any any one character from getting stuck in the in in, in X specific role. Uh, yeah, I, I like that. I think that could work well. And come to think of it, you mentioned Nightcrawler, Storm, and Colossus, or rather T did. Um, they're all characters from the all-new, all-different team, like yeah. some of the characters we talked about this episode. And that really makes me realize Dave Cockrum did an amazing job designing that lineup. I mean, okay, yes, I know technically Banshee existed first, Sunfire existed first, Wolverine existed first, but still, that team, they look so goddamn distinct from one another, and color-wise and power-wise and silhouette-wise, they're all immediately recognizable. Uh, Storm aside, not as diverse as perhaps we would like in terms of either ethnicity or uh, gender, especially since Sunfire quit and Thunderbird died so soon— but uh, visually, yeah. And that's something that I think you see more in older comics. You can see it some in modern stuff. You see it a lot in modern animation. But when people are, but, but it was a necessity in the newsprint comic days in ways that it's not now. Um, and I think that the medium is, is in some ways somewhat lesser for it. I never made that connection. You're not wrong. Cool. And thanks, T. So, speaking of thanks, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts, and today, the mic goes somewhat outside of the miniseries to Latveria and its monarch, Doctor Doom. Doom does not make a habit of dwelling on the shortcomings of nations that are not Latveria, for Doom would have time for little else, and Doom has a busy schedule of superiority and domination. But Russia, despite its hard times in the year 1998, must be condemned for the pitiful state of its evil research. Seeking gifted children to use as soldiers? Of course, that is the duty of any nation. But allowing facilities to fall into disrepair, employing human soldiers instead of doom bots, neglecting to notice the gifts that await an innocent youth, Perhaps that fool Patrick Sanger thought to protect the youth. Or perhaps this was mere incompetence. But any true leader should know that all children must be either downtrodden peasants, blindly loyal Strength Force members, or my adorable and brilliant goddaughter Valeria, whom I love very much. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, I guess soon-to-be YouTube Music, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for a visual companion to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, and ad-free, and sometimes very grim, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, X-Force gets possessed. And teams up with the champions. (laughs) 